in a crucial stage It's not because of foreign wars we wage It's more to do with the colors blue and red Too many laws and too much government Can you tell me where the Constitution went? The Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread So many people trying to cross the border Politicians build a new world order Too many minds are convinced they should be led I've gotta be free The way God made men And I won't be ruled by the damn you win Taking your right to self-defense They say you're safer but they don't make sense Dangerous ones will not turn into guns Always ask for more All we buy is made on foreign shores Come a day when there'll be real hell pay I've gotta be free The way God made men And I won't be ruled by the damn you wet Welcome to today's broadcast of Tapping to the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you, as always, I am indeed your ever-so-humble and, you know, mostly peaceful host, Tim Tapp, and I am coming to you from a beautiful, lovely, scenic, romantic even, on the right day with the right person, but most importantly, historic Roan County, Tennessee. All right, so... Here's the situation. I've been struggling with equipment issues for a long time. I'm on an extremely shoestring budget, and I'm still trying to do the best I can for a one-man production. But it gets extremely frustrating sometimes because some of the stuff that I have to work on is outside of my skill set. And I'm learning new skills as I go, and I'm trying to improve stuff. And I'm also trying to save up enough money here and there to to upgrade equipment and get better audio quality. And I, I think there's marked improvement from where I've been to where I am now. But ever so often, silly stuff that's beyond my control pops up, and sometimes the equipment just doesn't want to work. And it gets to be embarrassing. It really isn't because here I am yesterday, yesterday, I was supposed to be broadcasting a new show because the schedule is supposed to be right now, Sundays, Tuesdays and Thursdays. That way I do two hour show on each and there's uh, two hours of content for the folks that are listening on the podcast. So they get six hours of content a week. So great. 
Yay. Good for you. If you're listening on Terrestrial Radio, you get five hours of content because I'm only on five days a week on the stations I'm currently on. And they will take the the show and they will air and rebroadcast an hour at a time. So, you know, the Sunday show, you get Monday and Tuesday. On the Tuesday show, they have time to collect it and you get... Wednesday and Thursday, and then the Thursday show, you get Friday, boom, and then there's a mystery hour that's just out there for you to come find, come visit us. But here's the thing. I finally got some new software that works really, really well at recording interviews, and I've got the Skype working really well for the most part. And here I am again trying to make these connections, and it'll work fine for a little while. As it's been evident from some of the guests I've had on recently, I've still been reluctant to schedule. But since it had worked so well for the last little bit, I started scheduling guests on a fairly regular basis again. And I have now on two occasions been unable to conduct a couple of interviews because the equipment just wouldn't work. In one instance, it was actually my internet service provider dropping off my uh, upload speed. Just uh, nothing I could do about that. But then last night, there was a combination of the the stuff going on and the, the computers just would not move fast enough to allow me to make a connection. So last night, I was scheduled to do two interviews, and then I was going to play those two interviews as part of what should have been last night's broadcast. But I was never even able to get the interviews, nor would the computer start cooperating with me enough to actually even do a show. And I worked on it for hours. And the most embarrassing part was this was, in fact, the second time that I was scheduled to have a conversation with Andrew of redballoon.work. Now, Andrew's the CEO. You may have heard him, if you listen to uh, Southern Sense Talk Radio, you may have heard him visit Annie uh, a few weeks back. You've probably seen him uh, in a multitude of various places. Now, he's been extremely nice and very understanding and, and very polite, and he's still anxious to come on to the show. But it's it's horribly embarrassing because here I am, and I'm looking at these numbers, and I'm starting to, to get a better vibe going on. And having the opportunity to have these conversations with people will help to elevate that even further. And then that happens. So twice now I've missed out on bringing Andrew from redballoon.work on. And then last night I was also supposed to have a conversation with one of the candidates for governor of the state of Michigan. This is a man whose time is very valuable to him. And I come away feeling like I've wasted their time on both occasions. These are men who do not have time to waste. And I feel horrible. So I want to apologize, and I hope that they hear this apology. And I assure you I am in the process. I've got to replace the computers, and I've got a pretty good idea of what direction I'm heading in, and I'm going to be able to get a very nice one uh, 
it's outside of my budget, so I'm having to work on it still. So I'm going to have to try to limp through, which also means I'm probably going to have to slow down on the guest again. And it's horrific for me because this stuff works a good percentage of the time, and then it's just randomly – so I've got to get new equipment. So I apologize to you, the normal listener, for for my inability to bring you the kind of content that I was trying to bring to you. That's I feel bad about it, so I hope you'll accept my apology, and I hope you won't go anywhere as I strive to improve it. I hope you'll still come visit me at tapintothetruth.com. I hope you'll uh, keep coming to the uh, – the website, I hope you'll keep coming to social media sites and spend time with me and, and let me know uh, <laughs> let me know if you can forgive me and stay with us. And if you know these guys, let them know, hey, <laughs> I am not satisfied with wasting their time and, and I just feel bad about it. Anyway, enough of that. I've decided since I'm still in that mood, I, I really can't delve into a particular topic today. I just can't do it. I would love to. I would. I, and I should. But I am so, so angry. So what I'm going to do is actually revisit some of uh, some of my favorite interviews and some interviews that actually occurred relatively recently. So we're going to take a look back at uh, my interviews with... Uh, Pamela Geller. This was from a little while back. I have an interview with Milo Yiannopoulos. I mean, I, whether you love him or hate him, and it seems like there's not a lot of room in between. He's a man who likes to throw bombs. He's a man who said some things that are hard to uh, hard to kind of square, especially if you're a true conservative. But I had a very good conversation with him, so I hope you'll enjoy those too. And uh, so I figured we'd revisit. Uh, conversation with Doug Giles from back in January, with Tracy Fenton from back in February, and a very recent conversation with Richard V. Battle. Uh, it was very good conversation, I think, in all those parts. So I'm going to try to sneak all those in, and uh, if need be, I may very well just kind of uh, may run the podcast a little long. Uh, so if you're listening on terrestrial radio and you end up missing some of it, Here's a good excuse to go to your favorite platform to listen to podcasts and uh, hear the remainder of it, especially if you've missed these in the uh, archives. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get started with that, including throwing some of the regular break type stuff in the middle. But uh, before I transition to that, would like to remind you to... Uh, to visit Tap Into The Truth, that's T-A-P-P, intothetruth.com, and there, uh, scroll down past recent guests, and there you'll see banners and buttons, and you'll be able to click on and check out some of the great folks that uh, I have affiliations with. People like My Patriot Supply, people like the Hero Soap Company, uh, you know, Blue Coolers. All those fine folks. Uh, go check that out. Just visit me at tapintothetruth.com. I'm not going to put any uh, of those links in the show description today. This is really just kind of, <laughs> I guess, as much as anything, this is just filler material. And 
I apologize for that as well. But I understand there's a really good chance some of you may not have heard it. And uh, I'm a little surprised that these were the only interviews I had readily able to pick up because there were some other good ones like uh, when Judge Janine was on. I was looking for that one, and I couldn't find it. Uh, so I've got to get in here and reorganize some of my audio files too. So anyway, sit back, enjoy, and we will start with my conversation with Miss Pamela Geller. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am back live. Thanks for staying with me through that uh, quick break. And now we have worked through the technical glitch, and uh, I am now being joined live by Miss Pamela Geller, uh, the author of the brand-new book, Fatwa, Hunted in America. And I'm pretty sure she doesn't really need much of an introduction to the rest of you. So uh, welcome to the show, Pamela, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I, w I was telling everybody on air just a little while ago while I was trying to work through my uh, technical issue here about how when I first started doing uh, this show, which was a little over five years ago, I was making down a list of people that I would really love to have on as a guest, and your name was at the very top of the very first list I made, so I'm very excited about getting a chance to speak to you finally. Uh, so no pressure on your part, <laughs> but uh, your new book, Fatwa, it's, uh, it's kind of a – uh, an autobiography about your uh, transition. So let's just jump right in real quick since we're running behind uh, my fault, of course. Uh, tell us a little bit about that apolitical background that you had and what kind of transitioned you into a person who became an activist for First Amendment rights around the world. Well, let me say this. Uh, this uh, Long-time supporters of my work know I, I generally never talk about the personal aspect of this work. Or, or my life, but clearly uh, we were heading in a direction where I felt the story had to be told, how a New York City career girl goes from, you know, uh, basically a political um, glam girl who loved her, her art, her music, her fashion, her life, her, her job, to the most, uh, you know, uh, notorious, racist, Islamophobic, anti-Muslim bigot in the country. Um, and that was really because I stood in defense of freedom, and that's how ugly this war really is. You know, at the end of the day, I'm but a proxy in this terrible long war. What's happened to me is what happens in small and large ways to every American who stands for freedom. Uh, literally, I, for the, your listeners who may not know what it is, the book Fatwa, Hunted in America. Fatwa is an Islamic ruling, and it is a, it is a, exor it, it, it is a death sentence. It is a call for the murder of a person, in my case, for violating the Sharia, violating Islamic law, the speech restrictions under Islamic law. You cannot criticize or offend Islam. You cannot depict Muhammad under penalty of death. And as one, if one is familiar with the story, um, I have been targeted for death multiple times. In Garland, Texas, jihadists opened fire on a free speech event. Imagine, in America, 21st century, um, a free speech event garners a, um, a open, opening fire on uh, myself and, of course, the participants. And as we speak, there's a trial going on in Boston of a Muslim group who had plotted to behead me. The ringleader, David Wright, is on trial right now. Um, I, I was saved because uh, one of the jihadists attempted to go after a cop, Boston cop, and was, and was killed. So um, uh, once again, their attempt failed. But 
this is this is what is required to stand in defense of free speech, literally living under constant 24-hour uh, death threat, and what one is required to do that, the attendant security. Now, most Americans are completely unaware of this. They don't know that in 21st century America, if you stand up in defense of freedom of speech, you will be met with, you know, gruesome and unimaginable violence. But Americans need to know this because, frankly, there's a fatwa on every American's head. And uh, it's like they're Helen Keller and someone moved the furniture. They don't even know what's coming. And so I really felt compelled to tell my story as a warning and uh, perhaps a uh, clarion call to get involved in the fight. Right. Now, uh, it was essentially the events of 9-11 that, that led you to learn more about political Islam. Uh I'm really curious, what sources did you look to uh, in your effort to educate yourself before you decided to start trying to stand up for this fight and trying to educate everyone else? Well, what happened was, you know, it was 9-11 that shook me. I was apolitical. I thought that the, you know, we were in a post-historical age. The good guys won. We defeated evil. The good cop was on the beat. I assumed my freedom. I never suspected that it could ever be in jeopardy. And then 9-11 happened. And, it, you know, it was just uh, devastating. And, uh, you know, the World Trade Center was, had its own zip code. 50,000 people there at any one time, and the Pentagon, you know, so they hit the economic superpower, they hit the military superpower, and they meant to take out the Capitol or the White House, so the head of the greatest uh, country in the world. Uh, and I felt guilty I didn't know who had attacked the country. So when I found out, I felt guilty still that I didn't understand or know the ideology behind this holy war, and so I started to read. Um, uh, I, it took me on an intellectual journey. First, uh, Daniel Pipes and uh, Bernard Lewis, which I subsequently came to reject because Daniel Pipes talks about a moderate Islam, and while there may be secular Muslims, uh, there is no moderate Islam. As the president of Turkey told pre our President Obama, you know, there. There is no extreme Islam. There is no moderate Islam. Islam is Islam. And if you've read the 9-11 letters that the Muslim uh, terrorists left, their last letters, their martyrdom letters, Allah is cited 90 times. They're quoting Hadith. They're quoting Quran repeatedly. Um, this is clearly an act of religious war. And so I started then to read the, you know, the true scholars like Ibn Warak and Bachayor and Wafa Sultan, and Robert Spencer, and, um, and of course, initially, the Quran itself, which is, you know, uh, which is what is cited chapter and verse by the Islamic State, by Hamas, by al-Shabaab, by Boko Haram, by Hezbollah, by these hundreds, if not thousands, of Islamic military groups. And, um, you know, of course, the media is Sharia compliant. The media refuses to even mention this ideology or speak about it even in, in, in an elemental or candid way. So the American people are being disarmed in the information battle space. The American people are being disarmed in the war of ideas and all the bullets and the bombs and the bloodshed, um, bloodshed comes 
as a result of this war, whether it's Manchester or San Bernardino or it's uh, Orlando or it's New York City or it's Chicago or, you know, it may very well be Vegas because we know that ISIS has never taken credit for an event that is not theirs. And interestingly enough, with Vegas, they have doubled and tripled down. And the FBI looks foolish in dismissing it out of hand when they have nothing else. The idea that he took a few Valium over the course of 18 months is just absurd, absurd on its face. I mean, talk about nutty conspiracy theories. Um, I mean, that one is the nuttiest. Uh, It's very dangerous, this uh, willful blindness on behalf of the FBI. I'm not saying I know that it is ISIS or that it was, you know, Islamically inspired, but we don't know if he was a convert to Islam, and that no one is asking that question should deeply trouble every American who, who witnessed, and we all witnessed what happened that night. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, just, uh, it's almost asinine uh, for anybody, the local police or the FBI, to dismiss it offhand considering the circumstances. I agree completely. And your website over at uh, Pamela Geller Reports is one of the few that has openly answered uh, – well, has openly asked that question and asking for further answers. So again, that's part of what you do though. You become just this fierce street warrior for First Amendment rights and fighting back against uh, Sharia and really a figurehead in the counter-jihadist movement here in the States. What is it that fuels your fire to keep in it? Because there have been lots of people, especially mainstream media, who have done everything to demonize you, uh, basically say, uh, as far as the fatwa is concerned, that, uh, well, when you do the things she's done, she's asking for it kind of uh, mentality. What keeps that fire burning? Is it because it has become personal to that level, or is there uh, just that deeper stick to it of this? Well, that's, you know, the idea that I am provocative. I didn't make the cartoons a flashpoint. The jihadis did. And saying that I, you know, asked for it, and I, I had heard that. That's like saying, you know, a rape victim asked for it because she wore a skirt. Or, you know, in the Islamic world, many times these rape victims are blamed as being, quote, unquote, uncovered meat. I'm sorry. I reject that. Out of hand. I reject that wholeheartedly. This is not my second or my third or my eighth amendment. This is my first amendment. It's the first for a reason. It protects all speech, not just ideas that we like. That's easy. It protects ideas that may be unpopular or that we don't like. Because who would decide what's good and what's forbidden? The government? ISIS? The Muslim Brotherhood? The Council of American Islamic Relations? Seriously. Political speech is the most protected speech, and that cartoon that everybody is so, you know, afraid of, it shows a rather studly Muhammad saying, you can't draw me, and the cartoonist hand saying, that's why I draw you. That warrants a death threat in America? People are signing on to that? Then we're finished as a country. We're, we're living under Sharia. I mean, we are living under Sharia. If people are afraid to show a cartoon, it's over. And what gives me the fuel that, you know, that you asked me about is my love of freedom. And I lived a free life for the majority of my life, and I know what we'd be losing. I'm not saying that America is, you know, the only good thing in the world, but it is certainly the best thing in the world. And I intend to protect and defend it. It is worth living for, and it is worth dying for. And I think it's very elemental. It's not, it's not uh, complicated at all. And that's why Americans need to get involved. I'm not the only one who feels this way. 
I'm, like I said, I, I'm but a proxy in this war. Anybody that takes on this fight will be smeared, defamed, and libeled. They will never take. They will never debate me. They will never debate my ideas because my ideas are better, and I will win. My ideas are based on individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, and equality for all before the law. That is the font of my ideas. The left will cannot. The left's ideas cannot stand up to scrutiny or challenge. It's why they won't debate. It's why they make monsters of us. It's why they must smear and defame and libel us, because if you make a monster out of me, who's going to listen to a monster? Who's going to take the message of a monster even remotely seriously? Uh, it's, they, they don't. I mean, and it's very effective. They're doing it on a much larger scale, of course, to, to Donald Trump. They're destroying him. They don't debate what he's doing, with whether it's immigration, whether it's uh, you know uh, the the ban of uh, free 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 markets. They don't. They no. They just keep saying that he is you know a buffoon and he. Uh, look, the people have to reject this. Uh, the power of the media is coming down. It's not coming down fast enough. You know, it's a race now. It's a race for the hearts and minds of the American people. We've lost a generation. I know this. I was at Berkeley a couple weeks ago for Free Speech Week, which, by the way, was canceled. And the only thing that really bothered me there was watching thousands of young people march against the freedom of speech. That was scary. It was like 1930s uh, pre-war Germany, okay? Because once you um, prohibit free speech, it's over. You know, uh, a free society is dependent upon free speech, where is the open debate on college campuses? Where is the diversity of ideas? Where is where's the diversity of opinion? It's non-existent. We are blacklisted, my colleagues and I. There is only one totalitarian um, ideological uh, doctrine that is allowed, and uh, our children have become robots, really like zombies. They're frightening. They're dumb, stupid, and frightening. And the only thing they're missing is the, uh, the big jackboots and the leather coats. Yeah, there is uh, no question that for a group that claims to be anti-fascism, they certainly have no compunctions whatsoever about adopting the philosophies and the actions and the tactics of fascists. Fascists uh, always did that. Fascists, fascists, by the way, that is not new. Fascists always used freedom, the word freedom, always, ironically. And it's to laugh, but it's to cry. They always use freedom to kill freedom. It's as old as fascism itself. That much is true as well. All right, uh, just a little bit of time left. I really wanted to get your thoughts real quick before I let you go about the Southern Poverty Law Center. And, of course, uh, they're labeling you as a, uh, a purveyor of hate. Yeah, well, Hitler uh, labeled the Jews purveyors of hate as well. The Southern Poverty Law Center is an uber-left hate machine funded by the Soroses of the world. They have one objective. He said it himself, the president, Mark Potok said he does not mean to monitor any any group he means to destroy them and so you see patriots veterans groups tea party groups my group i am not one two or three hate groups i little old me is five okay they are an uber left hate machine that is funded to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars whose objective is to destroy those of us who stand in defense of freedom they're an uber left group now, we have seen how these left-wing groups have operated through the years. This is hardly new. I mean, and the idea that people say, you know, I don't understand this leftist Islamic alliance. I don't know why people don't understand it. The left always aligned itself with, with, with whatever totalitarian ideology there is of the day. A hundred years ago it was communism. 
with Stalinism, the National Socialist Workers' Party, which is Nazism. The idea that Nazism is hard right is, is part of the left's big deception. I mean, he, read Mein Kampf, yeah, he was a Jew hater, but he was a hard leftist. That whole book is a, a template for socialism. He's a huge socialist. It's why it was called the National Socialist Workers' Party. The battle is not left versus right. The battle is the individual versus the collectivist, the individual versus the statist. America was founded on individual rights, and everything noble and magnificent that she achieved as a nation was a logical fidelity to that principle, principle of individual rights. The left has been at war against freedom and individualism for as long as they, they, they really became into power, which was this progressivism in the 20th century, Woodrow Wilson. It's a whole other show. But the point is they hate the individual. And Islam, there is no unique soul under Islam. It's the perfect marriage. And they could be, and if, God forbid, they should prevail, this red-green alliance, they both could be equally brutal. Yes, the jihadis are wildly gruesome and, and, and barbaric, but the left has killed 100 million people outside of war. They can be equally savage. They are, two, they are both of a, of a piece, and that is to control the people. And there is no better system of governance than the Sharia. There is no better system of control of people than the Sharia. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, who named Ben Carson as a hate group, okay, does not even profile jihadi groups that are literally slaughtering people. My group, we have, none of my members have ever hurt anybody. But Southern Poverty Law Center members have targeted for assassination um, the Tony Perkins, the leader of the Family Research Council. Their members have killed people. Okay, so this idea that we're even talking about them, the only reason why we are is because the media has given them the imprimatur of legitimacy. And anyone that takes the media as a barometer of anything good really has not been paying attention. The media is, a is leftist, and they are a, no longer a news-gathering organization, but really a, um, a radical uh, you know, activist organization who seeks to impose their agenda. And Americans need to understand what will happen to you, so they know, need to know how to fight back, which is why they have to buy my book, Fatwa, Hunted in America. If we all stand up, they can't kill us all. This is what we have to do. Go to fatwabook.org or go to Amazon, Pamela Gela Fatwa, or go to Barnes & Noble, or as I said, fatwabook.org or gelabook.com and get the book. And order it for your liberal friends for Christmas. I can honestly see an a, 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 a exclamation point over their heads when they open up that gift and see fatwa. But it's something they need to read because truth is the recognition of reality. And that book is the truth. All right. And again, I want to thank you very much for your time today, Pam. And I would really, really love to be able to talk to you again sometime, especially I'd love uh, to come back. Can, it's, it's a pleasure to get to speak to you finally. And again, you, uh, Fatwa Hunter in America, that's the new book. But also, if you want to check out uh, Pam Geller's work, where else can they find you real quick? Thank you, sir. Have a good day. All right. Thank you as well. You have a great day. And again, Miss Pamela Geller. And again, uh, PamelaGellerReports.com uh, is another uh, great place to check out her stuff. Uh, and, you know, I know most of the folks that are listening to today's broadcast uh, already are familiar with Pamela Geller. But 
just the fire and the passion. And once she got going, I wasn't about to interrupt her. So (laughs) at any rate, that was a great moment for me. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as well. to wonder who in Hades do Department of Justice officials think they are. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook brought to you by Constitutional Grounds Coffee. The last time I checked, very recently, according to the United States Constitution, it is Congress's responsibility to make laws, pass them, then it's up to the president to either sign his approval or veto the bill. On the other hand, the Department of Justice is designated to be part of the government apparatus that goes and investigates criminal activity, not make up new dictatorial mandates. The CDC also does not have the constitutional authority to bully we the people into wearing face diapers, whether they think we should or not. Unfortunately, we the people have allowed almost all government departments and politicians to no longer operate within the boundaries of proper constitutional constraints. As a result, both government departments and, like the DOJ and CDC, and leftist politicians, both Democrats and Republicans wrongfully use face diapers, scamdemics, and whatever to try and demolish our God-given unalienable rights and exceptional nation way of life. To that, I say no way, Jose. What say you? I'm Ron Edwards. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping, traveling with him. I guess we traveled 17,000 miles when I was vice president. I don't know that for a fact. Everything is awesome. Imagine had the tobacco industry been immune the process to being sued. Come on. So when babies are born, the doctor looks at them. I'm so tired of trickle-down economics. And I never found that trickle-down on top of my head very much. I was listed, I was had the great pleasure of being listed as the poorest man in Congress for 36 years. 
I still had making a hell of a lot more money than anybody else because I was getting a senator's salary. No kidding. I didn't think you should make money while you're in office. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. Everything is awesome. Welcome to the show, uh, Mr. Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, Milo, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, being with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in. Obviously, uh, the new book, Diabolical, is uh, as a uh, is just flat out uh, going strong after Pope Francis and uh, how the whole cover up of the uh, the abuse has been going on. Uh, obviously, you were a victim of this. Uh, you've been uh, very open about that for some time now. Um, what was it that made you feel like this is the time for diabolical? Well, I've in my career made a virtue of uh, arguing with the left on their own territory, using identity politics against them, uh, showing up how ridiculous political correctness is and all that kind of stuff. And I, I realized that the problem with the Catholic clergy, with the um, priesthood, it was a gay problem. It wasn't just a problem of kitty fiddlers or child molesters it was specific not just a gay problem but a left-wing gay problem uh the the people who were in charge in the vatican um of covering up the abuse of children and this has been going on for decades are all left-wing homosexuals and i thought as a gay guy perhaps i could be persuasive on this subject because a lot of conservative journalists are very weary about allegations of homophobia even though they know this is true so i thought perhaps i could contribute something um, what's interesting, the more I looked into it, the more I researched, is I discovered that those two things, the left wing and the homosexual, are connected. Um, and one of the reasons that this cover-up has gone on so long is that it is not just gay people covering for each other, but left-wing gays covering for other left-wing gays. And in that respect, the Catholic Church isn't very much, isn't unlike other globalist left-wing uh, elite establishments, like let's say Hollywood, the media or uh, college campuses. In fact, it really resembles them very, uh, a lot. So this book is sort of trying to sketch out that uh, argument for people who might not know. Well, one of the things that I've been saying for quite a while here is that Pope Francis is probably the least Catholic pope in, in the history of the church. And, and the church has kind of been heading in this direction. I think one of the reasons uh, folks that tend to lean to the right are kind of uh, hesitant to, to to throw these allegations out towards the churches. It, it somehow feels like the the opposite of trying to defend freedom of religion, which is one of the tenets that most uh, folks on the right uh, actually cherish. But at the same time, we have to be strong enough to recognize that wrong is wrong regardless of where it's at. And I think you do a very good job of trying to make this case that this isn't about faith. This is about bad actors using the power of faith and position of authority to hide bad actions. Right, and and what's the point of us fighting hard for religious freedom if we are allowing um, the church to rot, to become depraved and uh, shambolic? And what, what's the point of us defending, uh, you know, the, the, the institution if, the, if we're not at the same time holding our friends to the high standards we hold our enemies to? 
And these people, unfortunately, are very much not our friends anymore. I try to sketch in the book a little bit about the intellectual and theological history of this, which is, if, if you're an Anglican, you know, if you're some kind of a Protestant, you know that the church has been drifting feminine direction for a really very long time. Not very many men show up to church on Sunday um, at all, but especially in um, Protestant denominations. Methodists, for instance, you know, you will never see a man in a Methodist church, almost ever. Um, this is happening to the Catholic Church, too. It's partly a result of the homosexual nature of the clergy, which ought to be more strictly enforced. I mean, the, 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 um, the intake, I think, the uh, admissions criteria have been, have been, has been broken for quite some time. But this general drift towards the homosexualization of the clergy and the blind eye turned to sexual misdeeds and the feminization of the church itself in general, that is to say, it started to adopt slightly different priorities in the last half century. You, you don't often hear bishops these days talk very much about God, about fire and brimstone, but you do hear them talk an awful lot about climate change and migrants. And the church seems to be adopting, if you like, a sort of Clintonian set of political priorities that reflect its feminine congregations. Well, if they want to attract more men, if they want a more healthy, fatherly masculinity back in the Catholic Church, well, the, the answer is not to disappear even further into the politics that have been driving people away, but instead to, to restore and to recover a sense of healthy masculinity and an appreciation for the heroic masculine virtues and that's a little bit about what of what this book is about as well um this is something the catholic church has lost if you are a father or even if you are simply a good man the news of somebody you know wronging a child in that way should move you to white hot fury and that is part you know that that righteous anger is one of the masculine virtues that i don't think this pope and i don't think the current uh, clerisy, the, the, the Catholic Church hierarchy understands very well, because if they did, they'd be responding very, very differently. What instead they're doing is a sort of slippery, nefarious cover-up. Um, and it's, I, th I, think it's, I think it's connected in part, it's definitely wrapped up in the history of the church drifting to the left politically, drifting uh, into the feminine at the expense of the masculine. You know, you'll even hear from this, this terrible America magazine um, and some of the most left-wing bishops, you'll, you'll even hear them now talk about toxic masculinity. I mean, they sound like campus feminists, some of these, some of these priests, um, because that's what they are. And I think the church needs to get rid of them. Right. Well, you know, it's, it is mind-boggling. It's, it's a phenomenon that we're seeing not only in the Catholic Church, but in uh, many of the Protestant faiths as well. Uh, I, I know a lot of good Christian people who have stopped attending services because they've been driven out by pastors and, and priests who simply are pushing the political agenda. So like you said, that's very much there. But uh, during the course of your research, uh, what would you say has been the triggering point in moving in this direction? Because uh, obviously this isn't a brand new phenomenon. It's just something that seems to be maturing. I think obviously the news about children being uh, abused is enough to move any decent person to anger and to action. The reason, however, that we're only sort of hearing about a lot of this stuff now, maybe since 2002, I spent the summer of shame this year, as they, as they say, the 
the thing about this sort of, this sort of child abuse is very often the victims don't speak up about it until they're in their 30s. So although the heyday of the uh, clerical sexual abuse was in the 60s and 70s in the Catholic Church and has been declining precipitously since, it's not down to zero by any, uh, any stretch of the imagination, but it is not what it was in its heyday. The 60s and 70s, which not coincidentally were the era of liberal politics, Vatican II, liberalization, this is the moment at which children were most vulnerable in Catholic families in the Catholic Church. Um, we're only hearing about it now because very often those victims don't speak up for a really long time afterwards. So I think it, it's, it, that's exa exactly how I open the third chapter of the book is asking why now, what's taken so long? Why do people suddenly care? I think it's worth also, I don't want to give them too much of a compliment because sometimes people can do the right things for the wrong reasons. I think the press has also become interested in this story, not because they care about kids, they quite clearly don't, um, but because talking about child abuse, talking about uh, child, uh, clerical sexual abuse as it relates to the Catholic Church gives them an easy way to uh, pivot into Me Too and the evils of patriarchy and masculinity and how awful men are. So I think um, whilst sidestepping, of course, the awkward and difficult problem of the fact that all of these bad guys are left-wing gangs, in sort of paper over that and talk about just how bad men are in general. So I think it's probably a combination of those things. I wouldn't give Me Too too much credit. Really, it's just a question of the, of the life cycle of abuse, if you like. It's when people speak up, and it's often very, it's often quite far after the fact. Right, especially when you're talking about uh, children, uh, pre-adolescent pre in particular, because it takes a long time to process and and move on. And uh, it's it, it is something that should be driving people to anger. And I, I think that you're uh, of course spot on with your analysis. But one more thing I would throw in there is I also think it's a great opportunity for uh, leftist media in particular. Not just to, to pivot to the Me Too and the uh, toxic masculinity, like you point out, but also to try and again establish that the only faith you should believe in is the state. Uh, because generally speaking, most leftists throughout history have known that people of faith very rarely are willing to put their entire well being in the hands of a government, whereas uh, for people on the left, they want the state to be the authority. Well, you are, of course, absolutely right about that. Totalitarian systems uh, or accept or welcome um, rival power centers, which is why in the 1960s the communists were so determined in America to infiltrate the churches. Now, it's arguable the extent to which they succeeded, but Saul Alinsky, the famous uh, strategist who wrote Rules for Radicals, which is the handbook for far-left activists, he bragged in that book, you can, you can read in, in Rules for Radicals, he brags about how easy it was to bamboozle the Catholic bishops in Chicago. And of course, the, uh, that city's greatest community organizer, who ended up president of the United States, was um, taught in an, in an Alinsky-founded organization that was funded by the Catholic bishops. And another chapter in the book, I talk about um, some of the odd close connections between the Catholic Church and communists. And in particular, um, the Alinsky 1960s stuff that was happening in Chicago. But look at, more recently, look at today, the Vatican just did a deal with China, giving it power to pick bishops. Now this is unprecedented since you know, Gregory VII and the investiture crisis hundreds of years ago, the church has ferociously fought all states everywhere 
um, and insisted that it is only the Vatican that can have any say in picking bishops. But, but this pope, together with his emissary, Theodore McCarrick, who he brought back out of retirement, even though he probably knew that McCarrick was a, a, a child molester, uh, McCarrick and this pope struck a deal with China, with, with a country that has Catholics in concentration camps, giving the Chinese state, the Communist Party in China, a say in picking bishops. That's extraordinary, absolutely remarkable. And if you, those of you who have some knowledge of the Second World War will probably know that there was a terrible book about called Hitler's Pope, which, re, which, which slandered really the whole church horribly. And, and, and even, there were even BBC documentaries about it that had to be in large part retracted uh, because the book just didn't check out. Obviously, the press loved it. We don't see very many examples in history of the Catholic Church sucking up to fascists, but we see an awful lot of examples of them sucking up to communists and socialists, which is, which is so self-defeating. They do the same thing, of course, with Islam. I mean, Pope uh, Jean-Paul II made this terrible strategic error of kissing a Quran. Can you ever imagine a Muslim doing it back, you know, kissing a Bible? Of course not. But you've got the it, – it's a bit like university professors welcoming on this uh, identity politics nonsense, which is obviously going to take them down. It's this weird progressive drive to self-destruction or alternatively, if you're more cynical, uh, you're, if, you're, if you're in my camp, it's a deliberate attempt to weaken the integrity of these institutions and to destroy their, uh, their, their ability to influence the, the trajectory of Western civilization. And that's, of course, what the communists were trying to do in the 60s. Right. Well, with with that in mind, though, do you see any reason to be hopeful of a, of another reformation within the church to see this healed? Obviously, you don't hold out much hope of that happening while uh, Pope Francis is still in place. And my biggest concern is I see more people leaving the Catholic Church than willing to stand and fight to try to fix it. But do you see anything different? Yeah. I mean, maybe people do need to leave. I think we need to hit these these uh, corrupt people where it hurts, which is their pocketbooks. Um, perhaps, the, perhaps you know, uh, this is a people sometimes point out that, that, that Christianity and capitalism kind of grew up together in the West, and it's true. And sometimes in capitalism, after a boom, you have a bust. Sometimes there's a healthy and necessary contraction that needs to occur. Now, that sounds like an awful thing to say when you're talking about people's immortal souls, but maybe the church does need to be financially bruised a bit so we can get people in place who do not have these terrible politics, who are not as venal and depraved, who do not cover for their friends just because they have the right politics, no matter what terrible things those friends have been up to, and whose first priority is God, is almighty God, and not climate change and Muslim migrants. And for that to happen, I think that... Um, you know, I, remember, I, I think I saw that uh, Legatum has stopped its tithe. Uh, I know that a lot of other, uh, other American Catholics are thinking about very carefully about what they do with their money. Um, the Vatican doesn't care about America very much except for the money it gets from, from you guys. So that's one thing that, that I think the laity can certainly do. Stop, show, stop showing up to churches that have gay pride masses. Stop showing up to churches that don't preach Catholicism and stop giving them money. And I think that you will see, because there is, a, there is, and you saw this under Benedict XVI, I think, there is definitely a conservative revival happening, happening among young Catholics, even if there are fewer of them than there used to be. So after these 1960s, 1970s bred, old, trendy, far-left communist 
cardinals start to die off, and that is going to start to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. Sorry, sorry, you can talk like it, but you know, this is this is what, this is what it is. Um, after they start to die off, I think there's a reasonable chance that we'll get a decent pope in. What I want to see is a black pope. I want a pope from Africa because those guys really are Catholic. They are, you know, they have not been. Uh, uh, remotely affected by some of the trendy social justice nonsense, the softening the Vatican II stuff. I would love to see, just because it would confound the liberals so much, I would love to see, you know, so the, the, the cardinal equivalent of Ben Carson or something rise from the ranks and we have a ferociously doctrinally conservative, faithful, uh, old mass, you know, Latin, uh, Tridentine form mass loving black pope. I think that would be awesome. <laughs> I actually, I do too. I like that idea because uh, I mean, the one thing that <laughs> I think that should be our new thing. Uh, yeah, the one thing you can count on for someone who's been in Africa, considering the majority of the continent so resource rich but still so poor in how it's managed it and the citizen struggle, it's really hard to fall prey to the social justice warrior nonsense. When you really are struggling to survive, and you see that in your well, your luxury, in... isn't it? Those, those yeah. silly left wing politics—they're a sort of uh, luxury good. It's something you can do when you don't have anything else to worry about. So in Africa, Catholic means Catholic. Yeah, uh, that's you know, I, I hadn't heard anybody actually express that before, but that is a tremendous idea, Milo, and I would love to see that happen. <laughs> uh, any. Uh, any final thoughts uh, from the book yeah, where you want to uh, give a little more encouragement why folks should pick it up and uh, give it a read? Well, I've tried to um, – yeah, I, th I think we've pretty much covered everything that's in the book, uh, sort of a broad thing. I would say I've tried to pick a few examples of things that should really get you mad, and I've done it on purpose, and I'll just leave you with one example of something the Catholic Church does to priests who speak out about this stuff. There's a guy called Father Kalchik. Um, who objected to his parish being kind of anointed as a gay-friendly parish by the, the local bishop. And they put this flag up that was like a gay pride flag mixed with the cross, and which he found very disturbing. And he he's become my new hero. He Imagine this, right? You're, a, you're in a left-wing institution like Hollywood or a, a college campus or a Catholic diocese. He tore the church down and burned it in an exorcism ritual. Uh, and then it became my personal hero overnight. Um, but the church then retaliated by, sending, by telling him that he had to go for compulsory psychiatric treatment at a uh, treatment, plant, uh, treatment uh, facility called St. Luke that the bishops uh, pay for, and they get to see all of your private notes from your sessions with psychiatrists. Then if you don't do it, your career's over. If you do do it, your career's probably over anyway because um, they get to see all the private notes. It's something they can hang over your head forever. So the guy's gone into hiding so that he's not compulsorily subjected to psychiatric testing and treatment um, with all of those reports uh, visible to the bishops. And this is a guy, by the way, who'd written to the Pope Francis uh, asking for help, saying, you know, please sort out the problems in Chicago, please sort out the problems in, you know, in the church. And Pope Francis dispatched the two priests who were accused of covering up child abuse uh, as the two priests that came to discipline him, just to send a message um, just to just to just to torture him, and that level of cruelty is something that didn't believe happened in the real world. I thought that was only in Dan Brown's imagination. Um, was that <laughs> did that Catholic Church exist? But it does exist. It exists under Pope Francis, um, and that, that's that's an example that I, I give more detail about in the book, which which I hope really annoys people. Uh, it certainly should, especially since 
there's not a lot of folks that are aware of that. So uh, that is uh, it's an important no, it story. Been very widely. Yeah. Well, uh, Milo, again, I want to thank you very much for your time this evening. I know you're very busy, and I certainly appreciate it. Um, and hopefully I would love an opportunity to have you on again some other time and, and just have some general uh, conversations about the left because I know you've got plenty of other things to say. Uh, but before I let you go. <laughs> I'd love that. Uh, please, Brilliant. Well, please thank you so much share. for having me. Um, thank you. Thank you so All much. Right. All right. Uh, before you go, though, please share uh, websites, let the folks know where you can uh, find your work. And if you're still inviting folks to follow you on social media, uh, feel free to throw that out as well. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, so you can find me, uh, my writing at dangerous.com, uh, spelled like it sounds, uh, and new book is on Amazon. So you can just look for uh, Milo Diabolical. You, uh, someone's probably put Diabolical Milo into Google before, but put it into Amazon instead and you'll find the book. Uh, and then if you, if, you want, if you want to look me up on um, uh, uh, Facebook, it's just my name. YouTube is just my name. Twitter, famously, uh, I'm patient zero of the conservative band hammer uh, era, so you won't find me on there. But uh, I'm, I'm on the internet if you, if you go look for me, and uh, of course the book is on Amazon. Uh, it's called Diabolical. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Milo. Uh, keep up uh, the good work of keeping the left off balance, and thank you, sir. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, how about that for a conversation? Yeah, how about that for a conversation? Uh, it's still one of my favorites overall, uh, even though it just feels like we're just trying to slam dunk on the church, uh, the Catholic Church in particular, which I'm sure is Milo's intention. Uh, but you know, there were reasons for it. And actually, after having read Diabolical, it is a great read. Uh, naturally, he has become a patient zero for the total and complete cancelization. It's almost impossible to find him now, but well worth it. And if you can find a link to the book and you don't have a copy, if you can go to his website. Uh, he's done a lot of uh, work since then, too, uh, and he's still uh, still writing. Anyway, uh, we are revisiting some of uh, my favorite interviews and uh, in hour number two, we'll be revisiting some of my more recent uh, interviews. So uh, stay with me. Meanwhile, uh, let me remind you to uh, check out A.J. Rice's brand new book, The Woking Dead. Uh, it's going to be released late July. We'll be giving uh, several copies of that away right here. Uh, we'll go over the rules again uh, at another program. In the meanwhile, this is going to be the end for the first hour. So uh, remember, don't take my word for it. Definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort and most importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. If you're listening to the podcast, don't go anywhere. Hour number two starts after this. If you're listening on Terrestrial Radio, tune in again tomorrow for hour number two. And the meanwhile, one last thing I'd like to say to barely there, Beijing Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. This is Tim Tapp. Let's go, Brandon. Hey. Let's go, Brandon. Hey. A blue state clan taught to praise the little man, told that union saved the working class. He was raised a red state son to love the flag and own a gun, warned about the greed within the mass. 
They met beneath the moonlit sky, a college party drunk and high. And when they had degrees, they said their vows. And he couldn't say when, he couldn't say how, he couldn't say why. She was different in his eyes. to today's broadcast of Tap into the Truth. <sighs> I do hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing with all the usual caveats, of course. I am your ever so humble and mostly peaceful, although uh, feeling kind of down uh, host. Uh, coming to you live from historic Roan County, Tennessee. And I am glad to have you here, and I hope you will... Hope you'll be patient with me. I, back in the first hour of uh, this two-hour live broadcast, and for the benefit of those of you that are listening on Terrestrial Radio to the rebroadcast, uh, if you didn't hear yesterday's broadcast, then you probably don't know what I'm talking about. So uh, allow me to invite you to go find the podcast somewhere and give a listen to hour number one. Uh, it gave the story of 
how frustrated I am with my current uh, equipment situation and how it kept me from being able to record two interviews that I had hoped to have for the broadcast. And it is absolutely absurd uh, that it happened like it did. But uh, then I also decided, since I'm feeling so grr about it, to uh, go ahead and just, you know, let's rehash some, some of the interviews that I've had in the past. Uh, partially so that you get to hear somebody other than just me talking, and uh, partially for me to... Uh, Keep the budgets low. Yeah, it's it's kind of a situation uh, when you go back and revisit stuff like this. Unless it's a topical thing, uh, which both these interviews were not uh, from the first hour. Uh, I mean, there's a certain aspect that's always topical. But uh, my interview with Pamela Geller shortly after her book, Fatwa, uh, Hunted in America, had come out. Uh, she came on the show and we discussed that. Uh, and it's a kind of a very different uh, take on what everyone knew about Pamela Geller to that point as far as the book itself. Uh, I had a bit of a fanboy thing going on. And, of course, that – I, looking back, it's hard to imagine. It was over five years ago uh, at this point in time. Uh, so uh, my my ability to conduct interviews are still not great. Because I really am just kind of used to sitting here talking directly to you over the microphone, and sometimes I don't do that so well. I, I do think I've improved quite a bit, and I'm sure that you would maybe say um, maybe you're a little better at it now. But, uh, Tim, you should probably just stop talking to people. I mean, like, totally stop talking to people. Just shut up. Let somebody else do the radio show. Uh, <laughs> but uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully there's still plenty of merit because Pamela was – on fire. She was great. And then uh, my interview with Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, which, uh, I, again, I was invited to stay in touch and reach out, but he's been so canceled. So few people know what he's up to. And he's always been such a bomb thrower. Uh, I got a lot of hate, believe it or not, from typical conservatives for even having him on. And the topic I don't think helped very much either. But we were talking about uh, his book, Diabolical. It had just come out about that time. And again, it, I, it started off kind of stiff because, uh, again, here I was talking to Milo Yiannopoulos, who was not completely canceled. He had been totally banned from Twitter, but most of the other social media stuff was still available. And, uh, you know, he was, again, one of those bigger name personality celebrities that I hadn't had a chance to talk to very many of those at that point. And, uh, you know, it's just that. But once the conversation got to a good point, he made some really good points, too. So if you're a Catholic and you weren't at all happy with the topic or the material, I certainly understand you being upset about it. But outside of that, it was still a good conversation. A lot of good points were made. So if you missed that, uh, go back into the archives, listen to our number one of the podcast. Uh, meanwhile, going to do kind of the same thing. We're going to continue. I'm going to... Uh, to revisit a couple of more recent interviews now. Uh, going to take a look at the uh, conversation with Doug Giles that we had back at the end of January of this year. And uh, then we're going to revisit uh, something that's a little different, a uh, conversation I had with Tracy Fenton. Uh, definitely, uh, we had that conversation in early February. And she's a very different topic, talking about freedom at work. 
And I, I think that's an important message. I, I think uh, a lot of folks would, uh, especially if you're in the business arena, would serve yourself well by working with uh, with World Blue and, and Miss Fenton and her organization. If there's time, I may revisit, but I've kind of had second thoughts. I said back in the first hour that we would definitely also be revisiting a very recent conversation with Richard Battle, but it's almost too recent. Richard was literally just last week. Uh, it was a great conversation, though, so, so I, I don't think uh, I don't think we'll be doing that. We'll probably end it after this hour, after all. So uh, anyway, uh, let's go ahead and enter into uh, round two. Uh, given where we were at with the bashing the Catholic Church uh, motif that we had going on uh, with Milo at the end of the first hour, let's see if we can have a more positive conversation about a personal relationship with God. But before that, I want to play a clip. Again, this was a clip right... Uh, it was on the uh, National Day of Visibility for Transgender People that came from a Methodist church, uh, the God of Pronouns. I want to play that clip, and then we'll go straight into my conversation with Doug Giles, who's one of the most kick-ass guys on the planet. And if you don't agree, check out his podcast, uh, <laughs> and uh, you'll certainly enjoy it. And uh, be sure to stop by Tap Into the Truth, T-A-P-P, Into the Truth, on one word, dot com, and check out uh, the links to the books and uh, to uh, his podcast. Uh, it's right there on the recent guest. It's still up near the top, even though it was back in the first February. Anyway... Let's play the clip, and let's get to the interview. O God of pronouns, we give praise to the Great One, the one who was identifiable as God. I am what I am, you say, the great they, the incarnate he and she, the God of trans being. Impregnating Mary, fathering God, Breastfeeding God of many breasts, you shadow, you shatter all stereotypes, making every single person male and female. Male and female, intersex, non-binary, in your image, exactly in your image. Spectrum, rainbow God, who put your promise for non-violence in the symbol for queer love, before humanity knew, because you knew. Who had Joseph, who could not sleep with a woman in a beautiful lady's cloak, perhaps of rainbow colors, before we knew, you knew. God of pronouns, who said, you can call me he or she or they, whatever makes you feel closest to me. Invisible and visible God, on this day, where visibility and celebration, belated, belatedness, affirmation, and acceptance is the bare minimum. Remind us that you are the God of pronouns, so you affirm and you celebrate them. God of Saul, Paul, Simon, Isaac, Jacob, Isaac, Simon, Peter, Abram, and Sarai, and Abraham, and Sarah, 
God of Joseph, of the coat of many colors, of the Ethiopian eunuch, of the Virgin Mary, God of all found families in the Bible, remind us that you affirm us in our full identity, name, pronoun, found family, all of it. For this, we give you thanks and praise to the great I am, the great they them. As always, I am honored and humbled to uh, know that you've decided to join me here as I rant, rave, and occasionally just get a few things off my chest. Uh, you are listening to Tap Into the Truth, and it is my distinct honor and pleasure right now to welcome back to the show uh, just a fantastic author. He is the editor of ClashDaily.com. He's the co-host of a fantastic podcast, Warriors and Wild Men. He's a great artist as well, in case you weren't already aware. And his most recent book, it's been available since October of last year, so it's not a new book anymore, but it's still the latest, and we haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again, Doug Giles. Doug, uh, it's been a while since uh, you've been here with me, and uh, I, I haven't had a, a chance to express my appreciation for you and your family and everything you guys do in the uh, in the service of the nation and Christianity, and you just keep getting stronger and stronger. So welcome back to the show, and thank you for being here. Tim, thank you for having me. We're here to help, buddy. All right. I've never doubted that for a second. Uh, you know, you still remain the only guest on the show that I honestly feel like to be properly prepared for our conversation. Beforehand, I need to, to light up a stogie and have some brandy or some bourbon ready to go, and usually it's the bourbon I need. So I, I love everything about the, the attitude you guys prevail, and you're just unapologetically strong. Yeah, and that's a rare thing in our time these days in this country. Well, everything smells, so attitude sells, man. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So uh, let's let's jump right into the book, and then if we have some time afterwards, I'd like to get some of your thoughts on current events if we get there. But you know, you've written this fantastic book, which you know I've loved everything uh, you've done to this point. I really have. I especially have this fondness for uh, Grandpa as a patriotic badass. <laughs> I love it. But the latest one. Of course, is uh, Psalms of War, prayers that literally kick ass. Now, I kind of promoted this uh, for my audience as a book that was written for these times, and I, I think I have a pretty good idea of to the answer to the question I'm going to ask you first. But I'm afraid I won't give it adequate justice. So I'm going to let you put it in your words. What was it that made you decide that this was the right time for this message? Yeah, so I've I've always uh, uh, preached on the imprecatory psalms, and uh, it's going to be something that eclipses most evangelicals' brains, because we've been told that these psalms that David wrote, that according to Matthew 22, verse 43, were inspired by the Holy Spirit, They've been seen in our au courant, uh, sassy, hipster pastor churches that are hell-bent for political correctness as naughty, naughty, bad, bad prayers. And um, I, I beg to differ. Uh, these psalms, again, according to Jesus and what he said in Matthew 22, verse 43, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
and they're essentially, you know, the Tomahawk missile. They're the 44 Magnum of the prayer gallery that we're supposed to launch when our nation gets jacked up by Marxist thugs or anti-theistic mobs that want to dispense with God and his way. Or when, you know, the church gets, you know, jacked up six ways to Sunday and we start listening to Justin Bieber instead of Jeremiah. Or when your flesh is out of control. These are powerful, powerful prayer weapons that, you know, the church used to pray historically, but nowadays they get glossed over. I mean, the Psalm, the, the book of Psalms was the church's hymnal for generations. And now all we hear is just these sweet little lullabies about Jesus being the lover of my soul. And we don't hear any of these grand, epic, full-on, pipe-hitting, nut-cutting uh, psalms of war anymore. So when when Biden got <clears throat> elected, hashtag deep rigged, um, all the Christians are biting their fingernails down to the nubs like, oh, what do we do? Must be the end of the world. Uh, you know, it's all over. This is the end. Antichrist, Satan, big government. It's like, no, dust these things off and start praying them again. Start singing them again. And what's wild, Tim, is that is that this book that got released before we were we were even ready for it? It shot to number one in 24 hours, held the number one spot in Middle Eastern literature and meditation for three months. And I'm sad to report, Tim, tonight. I hate to say this, but it dropped down to number eight in <laughs> on Amazon in the world in Middle Eastern literature. It has outsold the Koran for nearly four months. <laughs> Well, that's actually pretty impressive. Uh, I don't care who you are. Uh, and it's it's not surprising, though. I mean, one thing that you have been basically preaching your entire uh, public career is that an attitude of boldness and braveness is what is required. And as more of the uh, the spiritual side of you has been made more public, uh, you have taken this tack. I, and it really does stand up. It's something that needs to be heard today, and it's a shame. We have a lot of churches out there that it's a minor miracle if the Gospels even get their way in. Just this past week, uh, we saw a current sitting U.S. senator from the state of Georgia who was a pastor in a Baptist church claim to be a pastor for choice. Uh, uh, it's just mind-boggling. There's so little faith remaining in modern religion, which is why we need messages like this. And the fact that the book has continued to uh, to be so dominant in sales and to get so much attention, I think, really speaks to that opening. It, it's not that dissimilar to when a television show that has a wholesome message manages to become a surprise hit. There is that hole that so many people instinctively feel is missing, and unfortunately our society today tells us that we have to, to find something to fill it, and usually that has to be something to do with a sexual identity or some drug somewhere or something else that's absolutely horrible for you, when in honesty it is a personal walk of faith that's missing, and these times, for those Christians who feel put upon, for those Christians who are afraid to speak up, this is the message that they need. And you literally break it down. You go through uh, all the different Psalms. I mean, you specifically state chapter to chapter what they focus on and what you need to fight against. Everything from evil leaders to uh, people who uh, 
set traps for the righteous. And I love how you broke it down. Uh, was that a matter of inspiration, or did it just make sense after you got started to set it up? The way? Because the form, it's easy to read, and it drives the point home very, very well. Yeah, so I got asked initially when the book launched, and uh, I did an Eric Metaxas TV interview on his show, and it just exploded. Everybody's like, so what inspired you to do this? You know, what was what was the afflatus? What was the impetus? It's like, well, I got I got the COVID Delta variant and I'm laying in bed and I'm sick and I'm feeling like a wuss because I'm laying in bed and sick from this bad cold. And that's all it is. And I got a buddy of mine, Patrick Byrne, who's a former uh, CEO and founder of Overstock.com, who got a got two Ph.D.s while he was dealing with stage four cancer (laughs) And so it's like, I need to write a book. And you know what? I need to write a book on Dirty Harry prayers. And that's what this book is all about. It's dusting off these maledictions, these curses for, you know, street verbiage, and uh, praying them against the enemies that uh, hate God, hate our country, hate the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence. Um, They don't give two Liberty gibbets about the gospel. And instead of us thinking that this is the end of the world, maybe it's the end of their game. And what's funny, man, is that since I've released this book, not saying that it's this book that I wrote that did this, we see Chris Cuomo, he doesn't have a primetime show anymore. We see Andrew Cuomo, he's not governor of the state of New York anymore. We see CNN, and their ratings are in the tank and, and we're seeing Biden's administration and Kamala Harris, and nobody likes them. Everybody knows that the, the state, uh, the United States of America, is in a precipitous, uh, how can I put it, a state of declension. How's that? Right. And um, so God wakes everybody up real quick. The church is the eternal purpose of God. We need to understand the authority, the power, the moxie that we wield uh, in the heavenly realms. And look, at the end of the day, for everybody who thinks that this is the end of the world, it's like Satan's a created being. He was crushed by Christ in his first coming, not his second coming. Uh, he was divested of his power. He's still you know, running roughshod over the world, but Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. We've got two-thirds of the angelic host that are at our behest, and they're badasses, believe me. And we need to understand the authority, uh, the power, and the weapons that have been given to us and wield them. And that's what this book, Psalms of War, is all about. So it's not, it's not kind of your sleepy, breezy, summer squeezy type devotional. This is a war manual. And I tell people in the introduction to the Psalms of War, prayers that literally kick ass, it's like, pray these things out loud. Brother, I'm telling you, I do it all the time. It's completely changed my prayer life. This is not now I lay me down to sleep type crap. This is God, smite your enemies. God, break their teeth. Lord, crush their influence. Turn them into snail slime. And that's how King David, who God said, he's a man after my heart, that's how he prayed. And brother Tim, if you, if you can point to any pastor anywhere in the United States, aside from me, who prays these maledictions against the enemies of God, 
and the enemies of that which is holy, just, and good, the way that David prayed it, I'll eat a tube sock. <laughs> well, uh, you're safe on that one, Doug, because I can't. I can barely find a, a preacher that's willing to come out and say something uh, about the the wages of sin. I, I It's literally been at least four years since I've been into a regular church church service and heard a preacher actually bring a fire and brimstone sermon just to try to wake Bro, you up. Don't, Tim, Tim, you don't hear anything about hell. You don't hear anything about repentance. You don't no. hear anything about the judgment seat. You don't hear anything about sacrifice. It's all, you know, Jesus is my Santa Christ, and he's going to fulfill my gimme list. Listen, folks, the war is on, and uh, especially for the heart and soul of this nation and uh, for the church. You look what the church did, Tim, during the whole COVID crap, and everybody's still playing pandemic, not in Texas, thank God. That's where I live. But everybody shut their church down. Everybody listened to their governor. Everybody was listening to their mayor. Can we can we assemble? Can we uh, do high fives? Can we do a fist bump? Can we sit next to each other? Can we do communion? Can we do worship? Do we have to wear a face mask? What kind of bull crap is that? You show me any place in the scripture where Jesus said, if there's a bad cold going around, you guys don't hug each other, don't do what Paul said, and I think it was four times his injunction in his various epistles to greet each other with a holy kiss. So all of a sudden now we're supposed to suspend our essential biblical activities because frickin' Mayor McCheese told us to do that. I think more pastors need to go to prison righteously. I mean, Rodney Howard Brown did it in Tampa. You got uh, Arthur Pulaski in Calgary. You got James Coates in Edmonton, Canada. They all went to jail. They were like, you know, go pound sand. We're not going to stop preaching the gospel. We're not going to stop assembly. We can uh, we can decide, you know, how we assemble. If grandmother has been eating chicken fried steak for 80 years, we're not going to put her around some, you know, booger dripping COVID kid that's 10 years old. We can do that. Believe it or not, we have common sense. But the churches are abysmal. I mean, it's it's full-on pathetic, Tim, how pastors – I think any pastor that shut down their church because uh, they were told to by a governor or a mayor, I think that they should publicly repent for being a big wussy to government authority. When Peter and John, when, when they were told, hey, you don't need to preach, and hey, you, you don't need to assemble anymore, they said, listen, we must obey God rather than men. And this is just terrible, man. And I think I, I, I'm so happy that a lot of churches shut down permanently because I think God's uh, clearing the table just like Jack Nicholson did in Five Easy Pieces. <laughs> I, I can't agree with you more. Uh, it, it is shameful that you literally have a small handful of pastors, and you literally have to go into Canada too in order to get to that small handful that actually risked what the apostles did in order to bring the message and do what they have been instructed to do. Yeah, um, hello. And so so all the pastors around here, they're like, well, we're supposed to obey the government. You're supposed to obey the government when it praises what's good and it, when it punishes what's evil. When it punishes what's good and praises what's evil— i.e. our civil liberties and our rights to assemble the First Amendment, then you are beholden, according to the Scripture, to civil disobedience. 
Uh, it's a message that's just not out there except for uh, except for you, my friend. You you literally are one of the uh, two or three folks and the other few are associated with you that are bringing this message. But, you know, we well, they don't they don't want to lose their 501c3 and they don't want to get audited and they don't want to pay taxes on their you know property purchases or their hot dogs for the, you know, the the covered dish dinner. And to me, you're a puppet. You're not a prophet. John the Baptist would never do that. Jesus Christ would never do that. You got to be kidding me! I, I don't know. I don't know what kind of thing that they thought that they were getting into. And I'm speaking to pastors in particular. But you need to frickin' resign and sell used cars. Yeah. Uh, it would mo- be much better suited for that. There's no doubt. It, it is shameful, and, and I, I'm honestly shocked to a degree. That uh, churches are able to put uh, any bring any uh, butts into the the pews these days because the people of faith are better served by staying home and studying themselves uh, than to go into some of these buildings. Uh, there was my grandfather was a pastor. He was a, an old school fire and brimstone uh, pastor, and one of the stories he liked telling when he would go preaching revivals is he would start talking about how. Uh, uh, he was talking to a fellow preacher, and uh, he had gotten invited to a certain church, and it was a, a fancy uh, big church. We didn't have mega churches uh, just yet then, but it was pretty much the equivalent to what a mega church uh, uh, predecessor would be. And he said, uh, yeah, I got invited to go up there. And, uh, wow, how did you get invited to go up there? I've never been. And, and his response was, well, don't feel too bad. It's been quite a while since Jesus has been invited in up there, too. Uh, it, it is just shameful. Yeah, again, you know, um, my old mentor, Leonard Ravenhill, prophet of God, he said, if your message is repentance, you need to pledge your head to heaven. And um, so the message nowadays in the hipster churches with skinny jeans, you know, big screens and smoke machines, it's Oprah, it's Dr. Phil, it's therapeutic. It's not the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I don't know if you know this or not, but I wrote a book called If Masculinity is Toxic called Jesus Radioactive, and it freaking crushed it uh, two years ago. Yeah. That actually, I, I went, actually, that was I the last bur- time that – I'm sorry, I don't mean to talk over you, but that's the last time we got together. Uh, that had just come out, and we were talking about that then. Yeah, I went verse by verse, you know, and I've, I've read Matthew a gazillion times and just uh, highlighting the overt masculine traits of Christ. And listen, he got killed because of his mouth. He hated religion. He hated hypocrisy. Uh, he hated people who were in it for the money, and he frickin' lambasted them. And he did it uh, in private. He did it in public. Anytime that lies, hype, and spin, you know, raised its garlic, garlicly knotted head, he blasted them, man. And um, that's the rebel from Galilee that we're all supposed to follow. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, something else that really sets this one apart a little more from some of your earlier work, although it's all great, uh, is you included a lot of your artwork, a lot of your oil paintings. And, and there is something so raw and stark in your style of painting. Uh, it, it brings forth the definition of the pain and the suffering in some of uh, the pictures and then just the brutality and the reality of what we face but to not be afraid of. And yet there's also this vagueness in part of the shadows that allows for, yes, this is where darkness can creep in, but this is also where faith and strength can creep in, and it's kind of your choice to make. 
maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just my interpretation, but I really do like the artwork, and I think it's a fantastic addition uh, to uh, to all the, 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 the psalms and the explanations and the breakdowns that you have in each section. Yeah, a lot of people don't know me as an artist, but, um, you know, I've ever since my mom and dad gave me a crayon at like three years old, I've been able to interpret whatever I see. And um, in regards to Christian artwork, Tim, oh my God, they make John the Baptist look like Kate Hudson and almost famous. And they make Jesus look like this forlorn, bearded woman walking around in a white pinois, and all the disciples look like these just, you know, just sad little China dolls and stuff. These were rough, cussing fishermen. Uh, the narratives in in the Old Testament, uh, you got David cutting the head off Goliath, holding it up as a trophy, and you got these incredible biblical badasses. And I got just tired of seeing, you know, from an art historian standpoint, my minor was in art history, I just got tired of seeing them depicted, you know, again, as these, you know, these soft-focused, feminine hygiene commercial-type characters. It's like, no, these guys, I've, I've been a hunter, I've been a fisherman for many, many moons. And Jesus attracted some of the most rowdy people on the planet. And I know those guys. I mean, I've been around them, like I said, for 59 years, and they don't follow soft little messiahs. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the crew of the deadliest catch. And so when I depict them, uh, you know, I have a Warrington brain that's very imaginative. When I depict them, I depict them as, you know, dudes that I've known and been a part of. And so there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of guts, and uh, there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of base in the traditional sense of the word, reality. And uh, I want art to smack the viewer. Like, I'm not trying to sell my art because it matches your carpet or your drapes. I want it to impact you. I want to punch you in the throat. I want it to make you, you know, not curl up in the fetal position and wet your big diaper. I want it to make you aspire, sacrifice, rise to the occasion. And... Um, Lo and behold, man, it's uh, it's found an incredible niche, and people are buying the crap out of it. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. It's like I said, it's it's absolutely fantastic, and it is that difference than what we're getting. It's filling that void too, because there's. Well, just... I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking right now at a painting that I did. It's from the movie The Patriot. Mm -hmm. Did you see The Patriot? Yeah. Okay, so. So this is the scene. I'm looking at it right now. It's the scene before uh, Reverend Oliver finally woke up and stopped being politically correct, stopped hiding behind his pulpit. But what it took, Tim, was they hung three people in front of his church. So the painting that I did, you've got three people elevated, hanging from trees in front of a church before he finally woke the hell up and decided sometimes we must cease to tend the, to tend the lambs, and we must go after the wolves. And I think that's where the church is right now, you know. What, what else does uh, these Marxists have to do? What else has to occur in the United States before the church finally wakes the hell up? Well, I, I think we just need a, a full... Uh, 
a full revival. Uh, we need a uh, revival on par with what we saw uh, when Billy Graham led that. I mean, such a a new reemergence, and uh, we've been seeing little signs here and there in pockets of people looking for that type of faith and finding it. But every time we make a little headway, at least it feels like to me, Doug, that, that that's when the left doubles down and tries to crush us. And we know the the leftists don't like people of faith. Uh, if you're not worshiping... But here's, but here's, but here's, here's where, um, you know, we reign supreme, not we because we're good and we're perfect and all this other stuff. It's that they completely blow off God. They they don't have the avenue of prayer. They don't have the Psalms of war. And so the church, instead of cowering in the corner, wondering what big government's going to do, it's like, listen, Christ said in Matthew 16 that he's given you the keys to the kingdom. So bind, so loose, so release these prayers, these Psalms of war, these songs against the enemy. And watch God topple kingdoms. Like in Psalm chapter 2, uh, the first psalm that I uh, uh, introduce in the book, Psalms of War, Prayers That Literally Kick Ass. So you got you got these kings, you got these prefects, you got these presidents in, in our context that are saying, let's dispense with him, let's get rid of God, let's get rid of precious moorings. Uh, David said, God laughs at him, then he scoffs at him, and then he takes a rod of a rod of iron and he smashes them it's like why don't you start preaching that why don't you start praying that instead of chewing your fingernails down to the cud and sweating what's going on god's not sweating these morons he's laughing at him he's scoffing at him and then he says i'll smash him and then i'll install my king in zion and that's christ man well, I mean, I, I don't know how to follow that up, Doug. I, I think that's exactly the <laughs> the message that needs to be heard, undoubtedly. But yeah, we just circle back around to my earlier statement about how shameful a lot of these churches are. Uh, they're being led in ways that just they're not very Christian. Uh, the gospel's not being preached, and it's, it's lame, brother. It's so lame. It's so despicable. Yeah. I mean. The churches that have opened up, Tim, they're like, ah, we're not going to mention that we just shut down and we're big wussies. Ah, we're not going to mention, you know, our borders are more porous than Rosie O'Donnell's pantyhose when she tries to high-step a, a high fence. Uh, we're not going to mention that our economy's dilapidated. Ah, we don't want to offend anybody. It's like, listen, man, all bets are off. It's time to push hard uh, for the message in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. People can read it. It's not airy-fairy. It's not pixie dust and candy canes. It's repent. It's turn or burn. And then we've got to uh, raise up the next generation that are fueled on the biblical worldview and why that makes sense juxtaposed against the Marxist-Leninist and the secular humanist worldview. And I'll throw uh, the Islamic worldview on top of that. All right. Well, we are quickly running out of time, and it's it's always surprising to me when the conversation is good. It goes by so quickly, and this one has just flown by, Doug. I, I have certainly missed our opportunities to get together. It's been far too long. We'll have to do it a little more frequently in the future. Uh, before we uh, part company, though, uh, it, I would love for you to, uh, first of all, 
uh, share any final message about the book uh, that you would like to uh, give a quick update on how things are going over at ClashDaily.com and with the podcast Warriors and Wild Men because uh, i got to tell you I love the podcast too. I haven't been listening uh, enough recently. It's been a little bit since I've checked in, but uh, there for a while I was loyal and I've just <laughs> – as always when uh, you've got things going on, time has a way of sneaking away from you and you just got to – you got to make time for it. Uh, but uh, a quick updates, and then uh, after all that, uh, please, one more time, share all your contact information that you want out there. Uh, feel free to invite folks to follow you on the social media where you're still active. And, uh, you know, the websites where they can find your work, all that good stuff. Yeah, so fake, uh, Facebook banned me for life. That happened three years ago. So I'm not on Facebook. And everybody who complains, like, oh, I got put in Facebook jail for seven days or for 30 days, like, keep trying harder, man. They banned <laughs> us for life. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I can't even get on there anymore. They got my IP and, boof, you know, it's just completely gone. So anyway, people try harder, and uh, social media is poison. <clears throat> but anyway, um, uh, Clash Daily is doing great, uh, despite Zuckerberg and Google and all the other – evil intenders uh 270 million page views gotta be kidding me man and um crushing it over at dougjobs.org you can find my podcast over there binge listen and you can check out my art and all the books are over there as well and i'm happy clapping man uh diver down damn the torpedoes and onward through the fog all right. Well, uh, let me steal your uh, line. You usually shoot at me as we uh, uh, you close things out here. Stay rowdy, my friend. Uh, absolutely. Always. Uh, Always. Give, Always, Jim. Stay rowdy. Give my best to uh, the family and just everybody that's working with you because you guys are doing a fantastic job. And once again, thank you so much for spending uh, part of this evening with me I, and the listeners. We appreciate it. Amen, buddy. Same to you. Stay defiant. Stay rowdy. I will. Do. All right. I'm going to have to cut that short, and I'm probably going to have to cut the Tracy Fitton uh, uh, interview a little short as well because, surprisingly, there's not quite enough time. But I'm going to go ahead in with Tracy Fitton, and we will do as much as that as I can before the end of the show. Uh, so, again, enjoy the broadcast. Remember to visit theronedwards.com because I'm not – uh, playing a Edwards notebook this hour. And uh, be sure to visit um, patriotmusic.com as well, uh, along with uh, naturally checking with uh, tap into the truth.com. That's T A P P into the truth.com. Meanwhile, here's the majority of my conversation uh, back in February with Miss Tracy Fenton. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for staying with us through that very brief break. And uh, I have a distinct pleasure and honor today as we have a brand new guest to the show. Uh, this is a lady who has been changing the corporate structure uh, around the world for quite a while. And uh, I could go through her resume, which is very, very impressive. But the bottom line is it's really more about who she is. Now, she is a CEO herself. She's pulled together a team where they go about doing corporate leadership development, and uh, they have a very unique 
uh, approach, we'll say. Uh, certainly uh, a bit of a rarity in the corporate world these days. It certainly has set herself apart. And uh, in the process of doing that, she has managed to well, she's managed to defend freedom and liberty in a way that most people probably wouldn't expect. Uh, she is a uh, author as well, and we're going to talk about her uh, latest book. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, please welcome to the show Miss Tracy Fenton. Uh, Tracy, thank you so much for coming on with me, and I, I want to relate to the listeners uh, how kind and patient you have been with me, because we were actually scheduled to get together last week, and I had an utter disaster right before we went on uh, air, and uh, you were very, very kind, uh, and uh, I certainly appreciate your willingness to come back. And so thank you very much for that. And uh, with all this other uh, aside, how are you this evening? Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. I'm so delighted to be on the show and talk about this very important topic of bringing freedom and democracy into our workplaces and using it to change our world. All right. Well, uh, you, uh, of course, uh, you've been doing this for a while. You have a freedom-centered organization. Uh, you've been working with uh, uh, your company's called World Blue, and mm -hmm. you uh, you do just this really amazing thing to me. I I'm always interested with people who work in the area of leadership development to begin with, uh, but certainly uh, what you do is a little different. But before we dive into the the book, which is a fantastic read. I haven't been able to get through all of it just yet, but I absolutely love what I have read so far, and you're laying out a good blueprint for the basic premise. Uh, for those of the listeners that are out there, I have not yet mentioned the book, so let me go ahead and throw that out there. Uh, <laughs> it's called Freedom at Work, The Leadership Strategy for Transforming Your Life, Your Organization, and Our World. Now, we'll swing to that in a little bit, but Tracy, before we get anywhere else, I really would like to know exactly how do you see your job description, and how did you get into this line of work? Well, I, I'm the founder and CEO of World Blue, like you said, and I founded World Blue back in 1997, so we are just about to celebrate next week our 25th anniversary, and what my team and I have been doing for the last 25 years is teaching leaders how to lead themselves their teams, and their organizations on the principles of freedom and democracy rather than fear and control. And we've had the great privilege of working with companies from small all the way up to Fortune 500 companies in over 100 countries worldwide with top brands that you've heard of, such as WD-40, Zappos, <clears throat> excuse me, Davida, Great Harvest Bread Company, Mind Valley, Widen, and hundreds more that you've never heard of, small businesses as well. And what got me into this, Tim, was from a very young age, I knew that my purpose in life was to help people realize their fullest potential. I just always knew that that's what I was here to do. And I had had a wonderful father who's since passed, but he was a teacher. Both my parents were teachers. And then my dad, when I was about 12 years old, went into insurance and financial planning and we used to, when he would drive me to my extracurricular activities, he'd be listening to Zig Ziglar tapes and, you know, Brian Tracy and all the Nightingale Conant stuff for those of your listeners who know uh, the leadership classics. And I listened to those with him. 
And I just always knew that was going to be my path, that my path was about leadership and helping people unlock their greatness. And it all kind of came together in a really unique way. My senior year of college, I was asked by the president of my college. I went to Principia College in Illinois for my undergrad. And I was asked by the president of our college to head up our student affairs conference. And this was a big honor because we're the oldest student affairs conference um, in the country. And I said, sure. And so got together the student team and I said, all right, gang, let's do something for our topic that's going to be really consciousness raising and outside the box and forward thinking. And we went off on summer vacation before my senior year and everyone was going to took themselves very seriously. And, you know, we went and did research and all that. And we came back and the student team presented to me. I remember in the, in the president's boardroom, it was all very formal. And they said, Tracy, we think the topic of our conference should be drumroll democracy. And my thinking at that time, Tim, was not very enlightened. I kind of thought democracy was old guys in politics in Washington, D.C. and voting. And I didn't think that either of those things seemed very consciousness raising or outside the box or forward thinking. Now, please know I love you know, guys, guys, we appreciate all the work you do. But, you know, it's those stereotypes, right, of what democracy is. And right. as I started talking with the student team, they said, no, look, like democracy isn't just politics. It's a leadership style. And it's a style that can apply to business. It can apply to government. It can apply to education. You know, it can apply to all these different areas of our lives. And as I started to connect the dots, I realized, well, wait a second. My purpose in life is helping people realize their greatness, realize their fullest potential. You can't do that in an environment of fear and control. You can only do that in an environment of freedom and possibility. And democracy is that framework that gets us to freedom. And so I fell in love truly fell in love with democracy. I ended up doing my undergraduate and later my graduate work at American University, researching and really understanding well, what are the principles that create a democratic system, founded World Blue, and built a global company. And here we are 25 years later, and my book, Freedom at Work, tells these stories of all of these incredible companies that we've worked with, but have also earned our highest uh, certification, um, our highest award out there, which is called uh, a World Blue Freedom-Centered Organization. So the book chronicles all these great great and inspiring stories. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it's, it's a good thing to know what your passion is that early. Uh, not a lot of people come to that realization uh, early enough to, to take full advantage. It sounds like, uh, sounds like you had some really good influence and uh, some really good uh, mentorships along the way to get you to that point uh, based on what you've said. But uh, you know what's surprising to me is now within the realm of uh, leadership development, there is uh, a – a, a prevailing idea, a notion that there should be some level of fear. Uh, leaders should be constantly concerned about uh, what happens if you fail to meet uh, certain criteria. We've seen a lot of racial essentialism work its way into uh, the idea of uh, the, the, the concept of being sensitive. You know the the racial sensitivities, mm. and mm -hmm. and it's a push that's almost so far that it's become 
the antithesis of freedom at work, which is exactly where you're taking your direction. So before we get more specifically about the book, I, I am curious, have you faced any type of pushback from other professionals that are in leadership development that that are looking for that more, uh, if you'll forgive the term, woke approach to leadership development? No, no, no one has really come and pushed back on us um, with that. Because when you look at uh, what I ended up in my research identifying is that there are 10 principles that create a democratic system. And I specifically use the word principles rather than values, because principles are inviolate and unchanging. Values are what guide behavior. Principles are what create structure. So we have found there's 10 principles that create a democratic system. And as I think about um, wokeism, which I'm not like an expert in talking about this, but because we really try to stay just really locked into the 10 principles. Right. But, you know, one of the 10 principles is fairness and dignity, you know, treating everyone fairly. Fairness doesn't mean sameness. Right. But treating everyone with fairness and everyone with a sense of dignity. So the whole premise of democracy is that everyone has worth, that everyone has inherent value. And that's really the angle that we come at things at with World Blue. It's recognizing that everyone has inherent worth, value and dignity and everyone deserves to be treated fairly. Um, another one of the principles of democracy that's so vitally important and under attack right now with wokeism is the balance of the individual and the collective. So sometimes we go way too far on the collective and we're forgetting that we have to also respect and value the individual and each individual's rights and expression and voice. And we're seeing so much of that individuality, I think, being stripped away in corporate America these days, well, all over the world, in fact, and everyone's being asked to conform, you know, to one collective standard. And that's just not, in my understanding, um, you know, breeding, you know, in in, in alignment with democracy and freedom. So those two principles, um, as well as many others, are what guide us as we go through this. And what's great with World Blue, you know, we're called World Blue. Blue is universally recognized as the color of freedom. We're obviously not a political organization. We're here teaching a leadership style. And we attract, we, you know, we have members from 35 countries worldwide. We attract people from all across the political spectrum, but who believe in freedom and democracy and want to build their companies on these principles and want to lead their companies on these principles. And that's what we're here to support. Yeah. Well, you know, that's uh, that's great. First of all, I'm glad to hear that nobody has taken offense because it does seem like, at least here in the United States, you being a worldwide company, uh, maybe you don't see it as much outside. But uh, obviously here, people tend to be easily offended if you just use the wrong word. And uh, I, I would hate to think that because from the sounds of it, you are taking that uh, very inclusive approach. Uh, all you have to do is like freedom and you should be in line with these orders. And yeah, 
I greatly appreciate the ideology of of standing firm on principles as opposed to uh, trying to establish what values are because values are a very personal thing too and and three people can share basically the same values but still have a major uh, difference when it comes to one aspect of that value and then you're just finding ways to divide whereas with the principles it's hard to go wrong so uh, a fantastic approach and I'm like mm-hmm. I said I'm very yeah Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if, if, if you don't mind, if I just add one more thought on what you're saying, because it's very important to bring this out, is, you know, at the core of wokeism um, and some of these other things is really a fear-driven approach. Mm-hmm. And when you unpack it, you can see that fear. And in my book, I teach us, I teach people really how to recognize how much fear controls and the many, many masks that fear wears. And so we're here to elevate that conversation out of the muck of fear, you know, and really make sure that we're coming at our problems with just a higher and more elevated way of approaching things. We really feel that freedom is a common ground that everyone can stand on. I think freedoms are sacred, right? And, And freedom is a seed that's planted in each one of us. Very well said. I, I certainly can't agree with you more. Uh, now, uh, focusing on the book just a little bit, uh, first of all, Freedom at Work, great title, should raise some eyebrows and bring some folks interested into picking it up. Uh, two questions uh, evolve before we talk about details within. Uh, first of all, uh, after 25 years in the business, what made you feel like now was the time to to have this book out there? And then the other question is, uh, do you feel like maybe uh, putting all your uh, success stories in here, does this work to reveal some of your secrets so that maybe somebody doesn't become a client or by sharing this little bit of the strategy and talking about how successful you are, will this drive people to uh, to your organization? Uh, which one do you feel? Well, our end goal is we just want to see more freedom-centered leadership and freedom-centered companies worldwide. And however we get there, I'm cool with it, you know. <laughs> We're here to support. I wrote the book to be a leadership handbook. And so to part one of your question, um, I knew literally from day one when I started World Blue at 21 years old, I founded it technically my senior year of college. After I started the conference, I was like, I'm going to build a business around this. Let's do this. Um, I knew from day one, uh, I'm a really spiritual person. And I just heard God tell me, you're going to write a book. And because I had that vision from day one, Tim, everything we've done You know, we've documented, we've researched, we've taken copious notes, um, figuring out the Freedom at Work model. I mean, I didn't start there, right? It takes time to hammer this stuff out, to to try new ideas, to see what works, to see what doesn't work. And I'm really proud of where we're at right now. I did not... All right, I'm going to have to stop it there because I'm quickly running out of time for this hour. There was literally eight more minutes in the original interview, which you can delve back into the archives if you want to track down uh, the podcast and one of your favorite, uh, well, wherever your favorite uh, platform to listen to podcasts may be. Uh, So if you'll be willing to do that. Uh, you can uh, be reminded of what a great conversation that was. In the meanwhile, I'm going to have to to cut it short. So for those of you that are listening, wherever you're listening, because this is the end overall, 
Remember, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort, and most importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. And speaking of, come visit me at tapintothetruth.com. That's T-A-P-P, into the truth, all one word, dot com. And from there, you can find the connections to uh, Tracy's book, uh, Freedom at Work. You can find a link to World Blue, as well as uh, links to uh, the Warriors and Wild Men. And uh, again, stuff for uh, those more recent interviews that you heard here in hour number two. I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, look back at uh, some of the past, and uh, I hope you guys can, uh, you know, have a great uh, weekend upcoming because we're probably not going to get together again before that. Uh, Stay healthy if you can. Stay safe if you can. Be smart out there, even if it goes against your nature. And, uh, hey, Joe, this is Tim Tapp. Let's go, Brandon. Using both hands Founders knew the Second Amendment was the final one to keep To hold our other rights intact so we'd never become sheep Stalin, Hitler, Maloney, and Pol Pot They told us things that you never forgot Is using both hands Well I prefer the 308 to the tiny 223 Gives me more than a thousand yards to protect my
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.